Chapter 4 of The Northwest Passage by Roald Amundsen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 The First Winter. On October 1st, there was every appearance of winter. The seawater dashing against the boat in the northeasterly gale was immediately frozen, clothing the Yoa in a solid armor of ice. The drifting snow swept into our eyes, and as it mingled with the seawater, it formed a slush that spread over half the sea. This was the initial stage of the ice formation. As soon as the wind lulled, the ice would be strong enough to bear. Meanwhile, the Yoa had been driven right up on the shore by the storm during the night. Our anchors had not had a sufficiently firm hold. This of itself did not make any difference either to the boat or to us, but if the formation of the ice was commencing in earnest, we could not leave the boat lying hard up on the beach for fear of the tide. So as soon as the gale had abated next day, we brought her off, and the Yoa took up her winter quarters about fifty yards from the shore. We did not care to take her further out, not wishing to be far from our cherished store tent. On the third, we were able to walk over the ice to the shore, that is to say, those who were not too heavy on their feet. As we each had to begin our allotted tasks after breakfast, we all remained on deck. On the crest of the ridge above the harbor, a herd of about fifty reindeer came in sight. They came in single file, light and graceful, a huge buck leading the van. He was a really splendid specimen with enormous antlers and long white shaggy hair hanging down from his throat. Obviously, he was in undisputed command and was on well-known ground, for he took the shortest way to the beach. It was evident that they intended to inspect the newly frozen ice and see whether it was strong enough to bear them so that they could cross the sound to the mainland. Their summer sojourn on King William Land, where they spend some months in peace and quiet, was now ended. Those endless moss tracts with their thousand lakes must be a veritable paradise for reindeer. A further advantage of the islands is that the wolf, their deadly enemy, curiously enough does not follow them from the mainland in the spring. That the reindeer do not prefer to remain during the winter in those peaceful regions is probably due to their being deterred by the rough climate with its many severe storms. The wind was blowing off the land, so that they could not get scent of us. We could, therefore, observe them at our leisure, as they crossed over the ridge and disappeared on the other side. But now was the time for our sportsmen. All work was discarded, the rifles were brought out, and we were off in pursuit. I myself am not really a sportsman. I cannot fancy shooting at an animal just for amusement. I therefore left these shooting expeditions to my comrades, who were all passionate sportsmen, and I took upon myself the certainly less enjoyable but none the less necessary part to the business of bringing the game in. Lieutenant Hansen, who was a born sportsman, exhibited great self-denial in joining the transport department. Unaccustomed as we were to driving with dogs, these meat transports were at first rather trying. The chase in these regions is interesting, but by no means an easy matter. The reindeer is exceedingly shy, and the endless wastes do not afford the least cover. The sportsman must creep up to the game like a serpent, and carefully watch the direction of the wind. If the quarry gets the slightest scent of the hunters, 
the whole herd scampers out of sight. It is easier to approach them when they are grazing, but if they have had their fill and lie down before the hunter can get within range, he must lie and wait patiently till they rise and resume grazing, which may not be for hours. The Eskimo are far superior to us white men in enduring this trial of patience. To them, time is of no account, while booty is everything. They will pursue one reindeer from morning till night. The ground around Yoahaven was the most broken ground on the whole of King William Land, which, in fact, is not saying much. Therefore, our sportsmen liked best to hunt around the harbor. It so happened, in fact, that this autumn we could get as many reindeer close by us as we could do with. Herd after herd, often numbering several hundred head, passed by us and took their way to the sea. I am inclined to believe that this was due to the fact that the ice this year formed a different track from the usual one. When the reindeer came to their usual place for crossing over on the narrowest part of Simpson Strait near Etta Island, they found open water there. They therefore made their way along the coast to seek a passage elsewhere. At 11 a.m., three of the huntsmen came back, having killed one buck, two does, and two calves. The fourth hunter arrived later. He had been close up to a large herd, but the mechanism of his gun had gone wrong just as he was about to fire. Such troublesome accidents frequently happened, but perhaps the most annoying part of it was the evident incredulity with which these statements were invariably received by the others. The engineer was, without doubt, our keenest sportsman. He took every opportunity to go out hunting, but he was prepossessed by the fixed idea that, to be lucky, he must absolutely have a soft gray felt hat on his head. As he had lost all his own hats in the course of the voyage, he went, first of all, on the hunt for other people's hats. The result was excellent. Next Sunday, our sportsman appeared with a particularly fine, brand-new gray felt hat. That the hat was mine did not seem to trouble him in the least. And I must admit that, with a run of luck he now had in sporting, he did credit to my hat. That very day, he shot five ptarmigan, the first of the season. One day now passed like the other, with a sole alternation of work and sport and sport and work. A hunting record, which stood unbeaten during the whole of our stay, was the one made by Helmer Hansen on October 8th. He returned, after being out shooting for a short time, having shot 13 reindeer, quite a creditable performance for a single rifle. However, this was too much for my small transport detachment. We had to requisition extra help, and the whole crew had to go into harness. While we were just getting ready for a start, a doe with two calves came walking down, quite unconcerned, toward the vessel. As soon as they came within range, they were received with a brisk fire, and all paid with their lives for the sancta simplicitas. Much snow had now fallen, and there was therefore good sledging. Thus, it was comparatively easy and did not take us long to bring the game in. As the country about here is monotonous and without prominent landmarks, it is sometimes difficult to find one's way. The other night we were out with the sledges to bring game in, in two parties, the lieutenant and myself forming one, and Ristet and Wick the other. 
It was quite dark when Lieutenant Hansen and I returned on board, but the other two had not come in. They only arrived a couple of hours later, and had, in fact, been well on the way to complete the Northwest Passage by sledge on their own account, as in the darkness they had passed the harbor without perceiving it, and gone on further west. When at last they suspected that they had missed their way, they left the sledges behind and returned, following the shore. The Krag Jorgensen rifle, which we used, was a splendid weapon, but we had to use lead projectiles. Steel projectiles were of no use. A reindeer would run away as fast as ever, even when several of these bullets had lodged in its body. In drifting snow, we frequently had excellent shooting. Probably this was because the snowstorm blinded the eyes of the animals, and under such conditions it is nothing unusual to be able to get quite close to the game. It is astonishing how lean these animals were. With the exception of two bucks, which had a little fat on their bodies, they were all exceedingly lean. Possibly the reason is that the warm summer, with the blazing sunshine, had parched up the moss. I do not know, but it seems most likely that their leanness was due to want of food. The following autumn, after a poor cold summer, they were like well-fattened pigs. The cook, who had volunteered to collect zoological material for the university, had already procured several fine specimens. Thus, Ristvet and Wick had each enriched his collection with the skin of a splendid buck. A special wish for such reindeer bucks had been expressed by the university, and you may imagine the joy of our superintendent when our Nordlanders, with their usual skill, had stripped off the skin and hung it up for preliminary drying. The dogs, which had hitherto been obliged to lodge under the open sky, now had a kennel built for them. This was dug out in a huge snowdrift. One of our flat-bottomed boats was laid over it as a roof, and there stood the finest kennel that could be desired. The whole structure was sprinkled over with seawater so as to consolidate it into one compact body. It was divided into two compartments. One was assigned to the old Fram team, the other to the Godhaven team. At the same time, another most important job was carried out. A hole was cut in the ice on the starboard side and a snow hut built over it. This hole was kept open during the whole winter so that we might have a supply of water in case of fire. This establishment was called the fire station and Lund was appointed chief of the fire brigade. It was not altogether a pleasant position to be chief of the fire brigade in Joachaven. Every morning he had to go out to the hole and do what was needed to keep it open. When the ice had attained a thickness of about four yards, as was the case during the first winter, this was no easy task. The snow which had fallen had now drifted together so compactly as to form an excellent building material. I therefore set to work, with the assistance of Lund and Hansen, to erect a building in which we could make the absolute magnetic observations during the winter. A site for this was chosen at a distance of 250 feet from the Variation House, and it was built in the direction of the magnetic meridian. We fetched the building material from a neighboring valley where the snow had been swept together in a hard mass in large quantities. The building was to be 26 feet long by 6 feet 6 inches wide by 6 feet high. The blocks were cut out of the snow with a saw. 
an idea of the compactness of the snow may be gained from the fact that these blocks weighed on average two hundred weight each when we came to put on the last tier three men were required to hoist the blocks into position a roof of thin transparent cloth was subsequently made up and put over the erection we thus obtained an excellent building for the absolute magnetic observations as the cold was now setting in sharp and made itself unpleasantly felt we had to think of our personal outfit for the winter thanks to our luck in reindeer shooting we possessed a large supply of excellent skins the lieutenant and i were constantly deliberating how to render these serviceable for underclothing we had brought out with us a good supply of outer clothing of reindeer skin and had therefore no need to trouble about this part of our attire but it would be splendid to have some nice soft underclothing we therefore selected all the calf skins took them down into the cabin and set to work neither of us had the least idea how to go about it we knew indeed that we ought to spread them out to dry but as to whether the drying should be done by gentle heat or by a quick fire we had not the slightest notion he looked at me and i looked at him however we arrived at the conclusion that it would be best to stretch them out up under the cabin roof as many skins as there was room for were extended overhead and soon the cabin resembled a combined butcher's and tanner's establishment we felt the skins every day and when we thought they were sufficiently dry we took them down and commenced dressing them how we labored we both were anxious to obtain the best results how far we might have succeeded is hard to tell i believe that after all in the absence of outside assistance we should have contrived to botch up something by way of underclothing though not perhaps of the first-class quality but in the hour of need help came before we had dreamed of it on october seventeenth Risvet and wick had quite finished building their house it was forthwith christened the magnet it was not distinguished so much by its appearance as by its situation it lay on the top of an eminence about a hundred feet high out toward the sea affording a magnificent view over the whole of simpson strait thus nothing could happen without being observed from the magnet if strangers arrived they would have to pass here in most cases if a bear should turn up on the ice in the strait he would be seen from here in short the occupants of the magnet commanded the whole country the house was built like the first of cases filled with sand it was not a palace but we were all agreed that the two occupants were considerably more comfortable there than anyone on board it only contained one room bedroom and workroom combined in one corner there was a large broad bedstead manufactured of boards of packing cases they had found that one bed took up less room than two they had also found that two in one bed could keep warm better than one and in this one must admit that they were right all in all the whole was fitted up in a most practical manner just by the bed there was a table with a bench on either side the other half of the room they had divided so that Ristvet had his workbench on one side and wick his diagram table where he produced the magnetic curves on the other side the floor was covered in with boards and reindeer skins the house also had two windows one looking out towards the sea and the other towards the yola 
Whenever occasion rose, the windows were covered up with earth and sand. As far as I know, this is the first time that packing cases have been used in the polar regions as building material. If something to fill them with is available, I recommend them as superior to any other material. If not, of course, it may be a different matter. Wick and Wristfit lived in the magnet for nearly two years, and they would hardly have cared to change places with us on board. Lieutenant Hansen and I lived in the cabin together. Our quarters were very damp, and every night during the winter we had to chop large icebergs out of our bunks. Lund, Hansen, and Lindstrom resided in the forecastle. It was also somewhat damp there, but not so bad as in the cabin aft. The first winter we had the vessel entirely covered with snow, and the temperature did not then fall below the freezing point in the forecabin. In the cabin aft, we were always below the freezing point. The second winter, as opinions were divided, I tried letting the vessel lie without throwing snow over it. But although the winter was far milder, the temperature in the forecabin soon fell below the freezing point at night, when, thereupon, I had the vessel covered in with snow, the old state of things soon returned. Uranienborg, the astronomical observatory, was the last of the series of buildings. One forenoon we all assembled to assist the astronomer in the erection of a building suitable for his purposes. Lieutenant Hansen, our astronomer, preferred the style of a rotunda, and we promptly set to work to build him an Eskimo hut. The structure was not a magnificent work of art, but it was built at any rate. As a base for the instrument, he used an empty barrel. One morning, as we were standing on the forecastle, promoting the digestion of our breakfast with a chat, and, as usual, keeping an eye on the hillside for reindeer, one of us, pointing toward the north, cries, Here is more sport. Immediately preparations were made for the hunt. But Hansen remained standing by my side and seemed to be straining his uncommonly sharp eyes. Well, Hansen, have you no mind to shoot reindeer today? Ah, yes, he said softly. But not that sort of reindeer over there. They walk on two legs. After this startling announcement, I rushed down to fetch my field glasses, which I brought to bear on the reindeer flock, and quite right, there were five men. Eskimo. Now, we had been discussing Eskimo frequently and at great length, but for some reason or other, we had all considered it most improbable that we should encounter any here. We were now near the end of October, and we thought that the Eskimo were extinct and had been relegated to oblivion. And here they were before us. All the information we had gathered concerning these Arctic barbarians rushed back into our memories. We knew from old books of travels in these regions that the North American Eskimo was not always amicably disposed. But we had learnt from Ross and Klutchak that the Eskimo word Taima was the best greeting with which to approach them. It meant something like a right hearty good day, and we had rehearsed this word Taima in the most varied styles of pronunciation. However, we did not dream of being so foolish as to put our whole trust in one feeble word. The only right course was to consider the newcomers in the light of enemies, and our plan of campaign was laid. I was going with two men to meet the enemy. Hansen and Lund volunteered. The rifles were carefully examined and loaded to the utmost capacity of the magazine. 
down on the ice i drew up my troops and inspected them and even the most critical general could not have found fault with their appearance and bearing i myself threw out my chest as well as i could drew myself up made a regulation right about turn and gave the command forward march with my brave men close behind me i advanced casting a sidelong glance up to the deck where the lieutenant and the cook stood side by side it seemed to me that their expression at the sight of our little host was not exactly one of admiration not even of seriousness well i thought it is easy enough to be gay when standing well sheltered on board while we were going forth to meet the uncertain possibly death here on the open field the eskimo were now at a distance of five hundred yards and were coming down the hillside toward our vessel i advanced in my best martial style and behind me i heard the tramp of my men in well-timed cadence when within about two hundred yards distance the eskimo halted several strategic possibilities presented themselves to my mind offensive defensive etc but i thought it safest to command a halt my men bore themselves splendidly in faultless alignment with their feet set at an angle of forty-five degrees and with a mean betokening courage and confidence in their leader. I thereupon reconnoitred the opposing host. They appeared to be talking excitedly, pointing with their hands, laughing and gesticulating without any noticeable indication of hostility. But suddenly they deployed in skirmishing order and advanced. Well, I thought, rather death with honor than saving our lives by craven flight. Forward, march! and on we marched expecting every moment to see the enemy take their bows from their backs and level an arrow at us but no evidently they are of a different mind is this a ruse suddenly there flashed through my mind heated with the excitement of warfare the word taima and taima i shout with all the power of my lusty lungs the eskimo stopped short but now our excitement can no longer be restrained we must bring matters to a crisis and we rush forward ready for action then i hear the call manic to me manic to me and this has quite a familiar sound i well remember it from mcclintock it is the eskimo's friendliest greeting in a moment we fling away our rifles and hasten toward our friends and with a universal shout of manic to me manic to me we embrace and pat each other and it is hard to say on which side the joy is greater our friends greatly surprised me by their appearance we had but recently left the ugly flat-nosed eskimo of the northwest coast of greenland and here we encountered a tribe of which some could be called really handsome a couple of them looked like indians and might have served as the prototypes for some of the characters in cooper's tales they were also tall and muscular in fraternal union we all proceeded towards the vessel i heard the click of the lieutenant's camera again and again by his side stood lindstrom with his broadest grin and i certainly can't say i felt much like a great general our visitors accepted with the utmost delight our invitation to come aboard there were one hundred reindeer carcasses lying piled up on the deck and the eskimo stared at this large store of meat but said nothing we stood for a long time talking to them laughing and joking 
then lindstrom asked me sotto voce whether we ought not to offer them some refreshments yes i told him to make coffee and put out some ship's biscuits we took our visitors down to the hold i did not care to show them into the cabin as i was afraid they might leave visitors behind the north greenland eskimo at any rate are notorious for parasites biscuits and coffee were served but did not appear to be particularly to their taste they indicated by signs that they would like to have something to drink and when water was given to them their faces shone with delight they drank a couple of pints each but if they preferred icy cold water to coffee so possibly they i say lindstrom just hand me that old leg of meat lying there yes i was right that was something different to biscuits now we also discovered that they were not quite so unarmed as they looked from the legs of their kamiks they drew large long-bladed knives and in no time they had polished off three joints leaving only the bare bones wick and wristfit had not witnessed any of the scenes during the eskimos arrival and as they did not come down i thought they had no idea of what had been going on when at last the eskimo had finished their meal i signified to them to follow me and led the way to via magnet there was no one to be seen outside and i knocked at the door and went in wristfit and wick were both sitting deeply engrossed in their books the eskimo kept behind me in silence what a strange thing i said that we should have visitors in these regions and good friends too allow me to introduce both gentlemen started sprang up in a jiffy and advanced with their most elegant bow and the eskimo stepped forward there was hearty laughter in which the eskimo joined with tremendous roars of course it was not very easy for us at first to make ourselves understood by these people but when once we had got them to see that our desire was to learn what different things were called in their language the entente cordiale soon made rapid progress certainly we should scarcely have been able to keep up a regular ballroom conversation with their ladies but we acquired a vocabulary sufficient for our requirements and we had no balls there they stayed with us overnight and returned to their homes next day we had already managed to make them understand that we wished to buy dressed skins of them the lieutenant's achievements and my own in the skin dressing line excited their undisguised merriment and we thought we had best keep them for ourselves a couple of days later they returned bringing with them some fine large reindeer skins however with a keen eye to business they only brought us large skins of bucks for which they themselves had not much use but we paid them back in their own coin and only gave them one sewing needle per skin i now decided to accompany them on their way home to see where and how they lived they had given us to understand that they were not going to take any sleep on their way home therefore it could not be so very far off next morning at eleven thirty we started i had with me a sledge on which i had my sleeping bag a little food and a quantity of things which i knew the eskimo would value highly following the inborn promptings of civilization i harnessed my visitors to the sledge while i myself accompanied them on ski and away we went to the west at full gallop the eskimo did not use anything in the way of a ski snowshoes or the like as the hard snow swept together into a compact mass by the storms would bear their weight 
and I had all my work cut out to keep up with them on my ski. It was November 9th, and the darkness set in early in the day. I therefore thought it would be necessary to hurry on. I did not know at that time that to an Eskimo it is a matter of complete indifference whether he travels in daylight or in the dark, in bright weather or in the thickest fog, in a storm or a calm or in a snowstorm so thick that he cannot see his hand before him. I only learnt this later, on closer acquaintance with them. About 3.30 p.m. they made signs that we were nearing their camp, and from the top of a hill crest I perceived some faint lights down in a snug, sheltered valley. By this time it was almost completely dark. The Eskimo uttered loud cries of joy and were exuberantly happy at the sight, and indeed the little lights down there seemed very alluring and inviting, suggestive of warmth and comfort food and drink, and all that can cheer the wayfarer on an inclement and cold winter's night. When we came within call, my conductors uttered loud shouts, of which I could catch only one word, Gabluna, white man, and immediately the inhabitants of the camp swarmed toward us. It was indeed a strange scene. I can still picture it, and shall never forget it. Out in the desolate snow landscape, I was surrounded by a crowd of savages yelling and shouting, one above the other, staring into my face, grabbing at my clothes, stroking and feeling me. The rays filtered through the ice windows of the huts, out into the last faint dusky green shimmer of fading daylight in the west. Poetical reflections may be all very well, but not in a temperature of minus four degrees Fahrenheit, and with an empty stomach. I was longing for a warm room and food, and accompanied Atira to his hut. I had taken a fancy to him. He and Tamaktuktu resided there with their families. It was a large hut, quite spacious enough for its eight inmates. Soon after our arrival, the male members of the colony assembled for a feast consisting of raw reindeer meat and water. Three entire carcasses of reindeer disappeared before I could consume a sandwich. They were chatting and laughing all the time. But there could not be any efficient women's rights association here, as none of the women were present at the feast. When I tried to show them how we conducted ourselves toward our women, and courteously offer some meat to Mrs. Tamoktuktu, they shrieked with laughter and evidently considered that I was a most irrational being. When the men had eaten their fill, the women were admitted. They greeted me with manic tumi and stroked me nearly all over the body. Then they departed, without having been offered any food. I was subsequently set at ease on this point, being informed that even Eskimo women are not unmindful of their own bodily wants when left to themselves. The disappearance of a joint of reindeer causes no particular comment. About 10 p.m. I went to bed in my sleeping bag, which I had arranged on the common berth between the two families, and slept till broad daylight. But before then, the Eskimo were astir. I saw them sitting upright, innocent of raiment, their sole covering when asleep being the skin rugs, enjoying their morning air bath. A chilly pastime, I thought, and snuggling down into my bag, I dozed off again. Their camp consisted of six huts and was situated near a large lake which the Eskimo called Kaaka. They told me, in fact, that it was just hereabouts that Lund and Hansen had been shooting in the autumn. 
Later in the forenoon, I returned home. On November 2nd, the fixed station started work. Wick had fitted up the self-registering magnetic instruments in the variation house and attended to these observations quite single-handed. Every noon he changed the paper on the registering drum, and this was not always exactly a pleasure, considering that he had to plow his way through wind and driving snow, often a yard deep in a temperature of 76 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, one will readily understand that it needed an able and devoted man to carry out these duties. He did this for 19 months without intermission, a handsome monument of his own creation to his zeal and devotion. Meteorological observations were taken three times in 24 hours. Besides, we also had recording instruments, which were in action day and night all the time. Risvet was the chief of this department, he had many a rough spell at his instruments out in the cold, dark nights. All honor is due to him for his devoted and conscientious labors. The office of astronomer to the Yoa expedition was a very arduous one. The expedition had had neither space nor funds to bring out a collapsible structure in which the observer could await in peace and comfort the right moment for astronomical observations, which, in our case, had to be carried out with a bare little snow wall to ward off wind and snow, and in the very lowest of temperatures. Just imagine a temperature of 40 degrees below zero and a biting snow. Till nightfall, the sky had been hazy, but now it had cleared, revealing thousands of glittering stars. Ah, what a beautiful starlit night, we others exclaim. But the poor astronomer must turn out of his cozy cabin go behind a snow wall, and suffer for hours all the particular hardships besetting the astronomer in the polar regions. Stiff frozen fingers, an ice-coated telescope lens, and all kinds of discomforts. Lund and Hansen were charged with all the work connected with the vessel. By way of extras, Lund had his water hole, and Hansen had the dogs to attend to. The dogs, unfortunately, suffered from the same disease that attacked them on the voyage out. First, Tiras of the Godhaven team was seized and died, and before Christmas we had lost seven of our best dogs. Too late, unhappily, I came to the conclusion that it was probably lack of fatty matter in their food that killed them. They had been fed all winter on lean reindeer flesh. Ah, those dogs. They have splendid appetites, as I know to my sorrow. They are always on the lookout for some extra wherewith to supplement their rations. The other day they helped themselves to an extra meal in a fashion as unexpected as it was unpleasant. Scylla, who was in a highly interesting condition, had been shut up in the passage outside the magnet to await her confinement. One fine morning, however, she managed to steal out and proceeded straight away towards the vessel. Midway she was met by all her attendant cavaliers, wildly excited at seeing the lady again. They surrounded her and escorted her on the way. But it so happened that poor Scylla was suddenly seized with labor, and her progeny had to content themselves with a snowdrift for a cradle. At a signal given, of course, by Lervin, all the other dogs rushed at the pups, each snatching up one and consuming it on the spot. When Scylla became aware that her pups had vanished, she raised herself and walked on. 
Again she was seized and gave birth to her last puppy. Then, lest the other dog should appropriate this one also, she hastily consumed it herself. This almost incredible scene is vouched for by eyewitnesses. Lindstrom had charge of the kitchen. This word suggests a warm, cozy place with well-scrubbed benches, floor strewn with pine branches, and walls covered with brightly polished cooking vessels. Alas, Lindstrom had none of these. It might be warm enough there, scorching hot in fact, so that he had to rush out into the open air to cool himself. But when he went in in the morning to commence his daily tasks, everything was frozen. It was dark and weird. The primus stoves looked grim and cold. Pots and pans made his fingertips ache with cold as he touched them, while the rest of us still lay snoring in our warm bunks. No, it was not pleasant work, and Lindstrom deserves a high tribute of admiration for the meritorious manner in which he discharged his duties for three years with unfailing good humor. The winter advanced quickly, and Christmas was drawing near. Our preparations for the festival were many and important, and as everywhere else in this sinful world, they were chiefly in the direction of food and drink. The cook was hard at work early and late. To him, certainly, Christmas could hardly have appeared in the light of a holiday. He baked and broiled, and we saw big dishes of cakes and pastry hurried out of our sight into Lindstrom's secret repositories. They won't find them this time, says he with his most cunning smile but it is not so easy to baffle them. It is the denizens of the magnet of whom Lindstrom is suspicious and in constant fear. They are like ravens when cakes are about. In fact, they were always playing all sorts of pranks on the good cook. Though, candidly speaking, one can hardly blame them as Lindstrom always walks straight into these traps, and when he discovers that they have outwitted him, he is himself the first to laugh heartily and enjoy the joke. Such men are invaluable as companions on a voyage like ours. But it is not only the cook who has extra work at Christmas. We all have a little of it. We have to trim and tidy up, of course. Our friends, the Oguli Eskimo, had now visited us many times and in large parties. They used to come about midday, build snow huts for themselves, and stay with us for several days. As a rule, they departed at 8 or 8.30 a.m. as precisely as if they carried watches, but now that it is dark, they have not even the sun to guess the time by. Towards Christmas, these visits became less frequent. At last, Christmas Eve arrived with brilliant weather. Each vied with the other in exhibiting a festive spirit. In gay dress and finery and clean-washed faces resplendent with soap, this was by no means a daily experience. But the reader must not misinterpret me in the sense that we did not like washing. On the contrary, we were only too glad to get a wash. There was nothing we liked better. But the cook had so little water that he could not spare any. The day passed pleasantly and cozily. We ate and drank and sang as people are wont to do on Christmas Eve. And finally, there came the Christmas tree, which was the work of Lund and Lindstrom, an artificial fir tree covered with glazed paper. Christmas candles were alight on it, and it made the illusion of a real Christmas tree a very vivid one. Then came the distribution of Christmas presents, undoubtedly the most important function of the evening. 
when we were lying off from Nays, our relatives friends and acquaintances had sent on board a large number of mysterious packages bearing the inscription not to be opened till christmas eve some had even had the foresight to put christmas 1904 1905 and 1906 and this was fortunate as otherwise we should have undoubtedly exhausted the whole supply on this first christmas eve the packages postdated with such foresight were left unopened loyally and not brought out before the proper time we distributed the presents by drawing lots to prevent any jealousy as even angels might not be proof against that and fortune played very capricious pranks great hilarity was excited by some funny paper caps which were lying among a quantity of pretty articles of fancy needlework among the lots lindstrom drew a cap with the inscription to the fattened polar pigs we roared with laughter and placed the hat on the head of the pig our little phonograph was untiring in treating us to songs and recitations whenever we wished for them outside the scene was grand and tranquil a most wonderful aurora borealis illuminated the whole sky but the ever-shifting rays filled the spectator's mind with a feeling of unrest it seems as though on christmas night at least they bring silent flickering messages from the outer world from home where they are now celebrating their christmas on christmas day we celebrated a double festival as it was the twenty-fifth anniversary of wick's birthday he was the youngest member of the expedition and one of the merriest full of funny stories and anecdotes an invaluable entertainer on board the big cakes which baker hansen had presented to us on our departure were the most prominent item in the feast in the forenoon the old eskimo Tarayu came on board and was most hospitably received as a christmas visitor Tarayu was one of our oldest eskimo friends one of the five who figured in our first meeting he was a man between fifty and sixty and a most jocular fellow among his fellow tribesmen he was held in little respect notwithstanding his age they looked upon him as something next to an idiot whom they barely tolerated among them it will be seen later that he was not lacking in sense but Tarayo did not appear to have come on any festive errand his appearance and mien bore the stamp of deep depression and tears stood in his eyes the old humbug he jabbered and talked volubly and that he was in distress about something was evident enough but it was not easy to get at the cause at last our united endeavor succeeded in unraveling the mystery the remainder of the tribe had gone away and left old Tarayo and his family behind in the most shameful manner so that now he had nothing to look forward to but starvation for himself and family unless we would take pity on them and let them stay with us during the worst part of the winter of course we were deeply moved by his pitiful tale and told him that he might come to us with his wife and child moreover I told him that I would go to Kaaka and inquire into the matter as early as possible. Tarayo and his family turned up very soon, and on January 2nd, 1904, we decided to go to Kaaka. The weather was splendid, calm, and clear, but the thermometer indicated minus 47 Fahrenheit. Lieutenant Lund, Ristvet, and I, with Tarayo and his family, all prepared for the journey. 
we harnessed eight dogs to the sleigh we did not take much in the way of necessaries as we only intended to be away for one night each man provided his own outfit and i had left the matter of provisions to our worthy cook who was an experienced polar traveller we others had little experience of these sledge trips we went at a smart pace over the sound ice to the west and after six hours journey reached our destination in the camp at kaaka everything looked very different from what it was when i was there last it was empty and deserted the snow huts looked more desolate without people or any other sign of life Taraiwa's hut alone showed signs of being inhabited Kayagolo, mrs Taraiwa, or as we generally described her the old eagle removed the snow block which had been carefully set up in front of the entrance to the hut entered and lit a fire Taraiwa himself went to the lake and cut a hole in the ice to get drinking water with his miserable icebreaker it took him two good hours to make a hole meanwhile we selected one of the best of the deserted huts and took possession for the night the dogs rushed about sniffing and ferreting for some addition to their day's ration a pound of pemmican but in vain in this indescribably desolate place there was nothing to be found for either animal or man in Tarayu's hut keagalo sat with her legs doubled up under her singing her perpetual hang a ha ya ha a and neither her person nor her song had any attraction for us we therefore crept into our own hut but that was not very inviting either in the first place an icy gust at a temperature of minus fifty eight fahrenheit swept in through the open window hole in the roof and secondly the hut was full of thrown away reindeer knuckle bones wherever we put our feet we trod on them wherever we put our hands we touched them this was both unpleasant and uncanny but we would soon alter it we got our things in and were going to settle down when we discovered that lindstrom had forgotten to provide us with candles i can't say that either the hut or our humor was greatly brightened by the small ridiculous bean-sized tufts of moss saturated with train oil old Terrio had brought us by way of makeshift we called them light pastilles but after all anything was better than nothing lund who was cooked for the night after considerable difficulty at last got the primus stove into working trim and the hot steam rose cheerily from the kettle at last we opened the provision chest we were looking forward in glad anticipation to what the good-hearted cook would have put in for us by way of an extra treat one guest putting the other cakes a packet of chocolate very nice what another good and a third a fifth eight big heavy packets of chocolate for one night well that was only one side of the case on the other side was the hard bread and underneath it lund dived in we stood by with our farthing dips and anxious expectation hard bread yes more hard bread that was all not even butter probably our amiable purveyor had considered that too much of a luxury we commenced to chop up the chocolate and throw it into the boiling water to make the most of what we had there was silence among us but i should not be surprised if at this moment our good cook on board the yoa had a phosphorescent light playing around his head which was not the halo of the beatified well after all said one of us 
it might be worse. Could it, indeed? We might have been quite without food. That was true, and our spirits rose again. The chocolate was ready. It was poured boiling hot into the cups. Here's luck. Whew! The brown liquid was no sooner in our mouths than it was out again. It was bitter cocoa, and no sugar. Nothing of the kind, of course. Our last consolation was that among the hard bread there was a spice cake. We might use that in place of the sugar. The inventor of this plan was the first to try it, taking first a bite at the cake and then a sip of the hot cocoa, but whew, out again against the nearest wall. The beast has spilt the petroleum all over the bread. The whole bread supply was soaked with paraffin oil. I will not dwell on the state of mind in which we went to bed with empty stomachs and tried to sleep. We did not enjoy much sleep, for our teeth chattered with a bitter cold. Lund was up early and lighted the primus stove. We must get some warmth into our bodies at any rate, he said, and again he put on the cocoa left untouched last night. Bitter as it was, it was better than nothing. We were lying half asleep, enjoying the warmth of the primus and anticipating with enjoyment what Lund was preparing for us. I was just about to doze off once more when I started up again on hearing him exclaim, I believe the very devil is in it. And then he found that the light pastilles had dropped into the kettle and the resultant train oil cocoa or cocoa and train oil compound was the most fearful concoction I ever tasted. There was no more hope of any enjoyment here, and at 8 a.m. we were all ready to start on our homeward journey. The result of our investigation was that Tarayu and his family must be looked upon as being deserving poor, and we gave them to understand that they might follow us back and stay with us for the winter. The journey back was not affected at such a dashing pace as the journey out. Famished and sleepless as we were, we soon got tired, especially as we had had no training whatever. The weather was foggy, and Tarayu led the way. At 1 p.m. we sighted the magnet, but the fog thickened immediately after. We went on and on, and the half hour which it ought to have taken us to get to the vessel extended to an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. Tarayu now declared that we are pa vidora, quite close. We went on for some time in the thick fog. At last the moon came out, and by her light we discovered that we had been wandering about without any definite direction. I proposed to Tarayo that we should build a snow hut and stay where we were till daylight, but he protested most emphatically that he would find his way through. So on we went in uncertainty, a state of things I always object to. But later on I took Tarayo to task sharply and insisted on stopping. He informed me with a self-satisfied air that he had found the right way and that we should soon be at our destination. And he was right. A few minutes later, to our unspeakable joy, we saw a bright shining light, the writing light which those on board had hung out for our benefit. It was 9 p.m. when we got on board, and we had been traveling uninterruptedly for 12 hours. They had heard our voices since about 1 p.m., and as we were so long in coming in, they had hung out the light. However, the fact of the matter is that if we had not had Tarayo with us, 
or rather if we had not allowed him to guide us he being of course quite familiar with the country we should never have lost our way from various circumstances it became evident that he had led us astray intentionally thinking he would get an extra reward for bringing us back into the right way again when i subsequently met the villain he always prefaced his conversation with Tarayo Angatuki Angi. Tarayo is a great magician. But I did not think it fit to reward him for his magic arts. The day after our return, he built his hut on the shore and remained with us till late in March. I was not sorry to have had him and his family as boarders, as he and his wife were useful in many ways. In spite of his age, he was active and had great stamina. He could run in front of a sledge without much fatigue from morning till night. He was peaceable and respectful in his demeanor, and always in good humor and ready for fun. As a builder of snow huts, he was matchless and of the greatest use to us. Cayagalo, his wife, was about the same age as he was. Her face reminded one of an old shriveled-up winter apple. Take one of these and cut two small slanting slits for eyes, a little jab for a nose, a rather larger one for a mouth, and you have Cayagalo's image to a nicety. She was about five feet high and so filthy that even the Eskimo jeered at her. Her son, Nutara, ten years old, was as filthy as his mother, but otherwise a very winning little fellow, very intelligent, and full of the quaintest tricks. His filthy state was chiefly the mother's fault. After a little association with us, the Eskimo generally followed our example in the matter of washing and keeping themselves tolerably clean. But the Torayo family were practically no better in this respect when they left us than when they came. When I returned in the forenoon from the Absolute Magnetic Observatory, I made a regular practice of calling on Torayo, whose hut was on my way, for a little chat. During these visits, Cayagalo sometimes treated me to some singing, the most appalling display imaginable. When she was carried away by her feelings, she went into a sort of frenzy, threw her head back, closed her eyes, and yelled her loudest. On these occasions I fled precipitately, but could hear her yells for some distance. Her husband and Utara were mostly on board, sometimes forward, sometimes aft, and were universal favorites. What they liked best was to sit outside the mess room and watch Henrique preparing the food. And although Lindstrom could not bear Eskimo, his good nature often enough got the better of him, and he would give them some tidbit or other. Tarayo and Nutara grew accustomed to our food, but Cayagalo held fast to raw meat and raw fish all the time. Christmas and New Year's Day being now over, we had to begin thinking in earnest of our long-planned sledge expedition. The plans had been many and various, as plans will always be in these regions. At last we decided that I, with a companion, should try to make my way to the magnetic station, and if all went well, we would then push on with the mail to Leopold Harbor on North Somerset. An auxiliary expedition, conducted by Lieutenant Hansen with one man, was to help us along as far as we found it expedient. All sledges were brought out, examined, and repaired where necessary. Ski and snowshoes had to be seen to, the tents examined, and so forth. Workshops were established everywhere. Lund was putting the sledges in order. He had to prepare manageable provision chests 
and to do a good many other things. Hansen, who was very skillful, was asked to achieve the most incredible tasks. Whenever any work requiring particular neatness and precision was to be done, Hansen was the man for it. He was also an expert in the use of the sewing machine. Ristvet had his smithy down by the provision shed and his engineering workshop in the magnet and did wonders at everything. Wick did delicate mechanical work as repairer of a number of instruments, and Lieutenant Hansen devoted himself to scientific studies and displayed great energy as a glove-maker. His skill in repairing old knitted gloves was unique. As in the case of all sledging expeditions on the polar ice, the question of sleeping bags was very hotly discussed. Our little trip we made with Turayo to Kaaka had convinced us that great improvements were needed in this direction, and there was a regular competition among us for the honor of devising the best patent. In the first place, the sleeping bag was too wide and had to be taken in to a considerable extent. A sleeping bag ought to be just wide enough to come up close to the body all around, yet of course not tight enough to compress. If it be so large that you have to curl up in order to touch the sides, you will never be warm. The patent bag with an entrance through a hole at the top and a cord for drawing it close around the neck was the one most generally favored. For my part, I preferred it to all the other designs and recommend it to everybody. Our tents were made up like Eskimo tents and were excellent. They required no repairing. They could be put up by one man, single-handed, even in the strongest wind, and once properly fixed up, they were never blown down. They stood the test on more than one occasion. However, we made one improvement in them, and that was in the door. The doorway is always the awkward point in a tent, especially in the polar regions. Very frequently, the patent closing arrangements consist in a number of fastenings and lashings, so that, after having gone inside, you have a great deal of trouble to close the door after you. However, I have never seen any tent door that will really keep out the drifting snow in a snowstorm, except the one we made ourselves. As two of the members of the expedition hit on almost exactly the same idea, I will not mention any name as that of the inventor. The patent was so simple that we have had many a good laugh over it, but the most ingenious is frequently the simplest. We simply sewed the mouth of a sack around the entrance of the tent. We then cut a hole in the bottom of the sack, and through this hole we went in and out, afterwards tying the sack up with a cord. A better tent door does not exist. It is easy to open and close and is absolutely secure. The many-sided problem was thus solved by the means of a sack. Experience taught us that tents were too cold in a temperature below minus 22 Fahrenheit, and we therefore decided to build snow huts, as from what we had seen among the Eskimo, these were much warmer. It certainly takes longer to build a snow hut than to put up a tent, yet I consider that a good, comfortable night's rest after a day's toil is so important that I would willingly expend the extra hour's labor required to ensure it. After a bad night's rest, one is not fit for work the next day. We therefore set about studying the art of snow hut building. We had no lack of snow, nor of time, and in Torio we had an excellent tutor. At first we let the old man do all the work while we carefully watched his methods. 
we soon saw that one essential condition is to procure snow having certain peculiar qualities but this requires much experience in fact almost an inborn talent the eskimo uses a simple appliance called a hervand a reindeer horn staff of about forty inches long and as thick as a stout walking stick on one end it is a handle of reindeer bone and on the other a ferrule of muskox bone the eskimo are also gifted with a wonderful instinct for finding just the right place where suitable snow is likely to be found if they have not their hervand with them they use a long-handled knife with which they always carry in the strap on their backs when they travel we never acquired any degree of perfection in finding the right sort of snow but we succeeded to some extent armed with a huge knife we four the lieutenant Ristvet, hansen and i met every morning after breakfast outside Tarayo's hut to call him if we came as early as eight a m the family were invariably still in bed Tarayo jumped up and dressed himself in a jiffy eskimo clothes are large and ample and are easily slipped on or off it took him longest to put on his footgear the eskimo was careful of his feet not only in dread of getting them frozen but also fear of sore-footedness as he moves about on ice and stone hard snow all day he does not content himself with less than a fivefold footgear when Tarayo had at last put on his outer anorak coat he wore no undercoat on these short outings he came out we each had our special day hansen is the most talented of us all in the architectural branch his huts were always real masterpieces. We soon found a site with a good and plentiful supply of snow in the many small valleys which lead out of the harbor. It took us, as a rule, an hour and a half to erect a hut large enough for all four. When the work was finished, we assembled inside to criticize its merits. Tarail was always quite as enthusiastic as we were. Mamakpo, Mamakpo, excellent, he would exclaim the special object of his joy however was the anticipated reward he did nothing without remuneration however it was not a large matter just a piece of wood or iron or whatever it happened to be for at that time he was collecting materials for making a sledge his demands were not exorbitant he was fully satisfied with a three-foot plank his family and their paraphernalia were not large and therefore the sleigh need not be a large one he opined with a philosophy which many might imitate during these days wick and i simultaneously made observations in order to determine the most important question whether our instruments were in perfect order wick did so in the fixed absolute observatory while I, for my part, had built a new observatory of my own 250 feet away. With all these buildings, there was something like a little town lying around Joachaben. The results of our tests were quite satisfactory, and as far as the instruments were concerned, we could start with confidence. For geographical observations, I had brought out with me a very small theodolite Nansen had lent me. He had had it with him in Greenland according to the astronomer's very careful examination this was also in order now there remained the important work of packing our sledges it was necessary to keep them under cover during the packing operations we found it impossible to build a hut to cover the two big sledges however we applied to Tarayo, and to our request 
he grinned most significantly and stretching forth both arms his eyes glistening with greed he said pana angi big knife he wanted a big knife for building such a giant hut and it was promised him we started at once on the building for the sake of convenience Terayo designed it in an oblong form and in order to have the sledges near the hut was built on the ice close to the vessel the hut assumed really gigantic dimensions and quite a scaffolding had to be raised for Terayo when he was about to construct the roof with our help he completed the colossal hut in four hours this was on a saturday and we had to suspend work and let the hut settle down till monday we were inexperienced at that time and did not know that the hut ought to be heated inside in order to consolidate it Terayo, the sly fox said nothing his idea of course was that as the hut collapsed he would earn another big knife for building a new hut but this time he had miscalculated the hut collapsed indeed on the following day but he had to build a new one without any further recompense we told him that was our custom the new hut was built a little way up the beach because Terayo feared perhaps rightly so that the movement of the ice had caused the collapse of the first hut the new hut proved sufficiently strong and our two sledges were put into it and the loading commenced one sledge was to carry a load of seven hundred weight and was to be driven by hansen with our seven dogs the second was to carry a load of five and a quarter hundred weight and was to be drawn by us three on february twenty eighth we put the last finishing touches to the work and on the morning of the twenty ninth we all brought the sledges up to the ridge so as to have them in a convenient position ready for starting upon the crest of the ridge we built a high snow wall all around the sledges and placed large snow blocks upon them to keep the foxes off then we returned and spent the last night together on board i looked forward to the expedition with confidence we were well equipped and had good reliable comrades and smart dogs we should have been glad of a few more of the latter but with good heart and a good will we would manage with those we had End of chapter 4